All right, this is the Yay, I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! We have a fantastic guest. We have a playwright. I believe you're an actress as well, and um, you're also a bit of a, um, a historian. Well, you studied at Oxford. Nassim Badi. Nassim, how are you? I'm great, thanks. We were just talking about uh, your <clears throat> what you studied at Harvard, uh, you know, with what's going on with the protests and everything, uh, the political, uh, you know, the conflict that's going on. You have a, you studied a little bit of that. Can you talk a little bit about oh, what wow. you studied? Sure, absolutely. I actually went to Oxford, not Harvard. I'm sorry about that, uh, Oxford, yeah. <laughs> that's okay. So um, I have a master's and a PhD from Oxford and my area of research was international development and humanitarian action. I'm a Yay. political sociologist. Wow. Sounds like you're the perfect guest for today. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, but the area that I focused on, the regional area was South Sudan and South Sudan was at war. So Sudan, the country was in a civil war for 22 years and then South Sudan separated and they formed their own country. And so I did field work there um, wow. focusing on the reconstruction process. Wow, there are that, a lot of parallels. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I was reading, I mean, you know, when we, when Norman and I, we did Foreman in Paris, there was a lot of talk about, um, oh, shucks, um, Ghana and how, you know, Africa was uh, undercutting a revolution where there were so many countries that were becoming independent during the 60s. And I imagine that some of that is still going on right now, but there's still a lot of unrest as far as separating um, a lot of African countries from, you know, uh, imperialism and the imperialist culture of either France or um, the United, not the United States, but uh, England. So um, was that going on in the Sudan? Very much so. The conflict in Sudan started basically at the moment of independence. Sudan had been uh, colonized by the British since before Sudan was really an entity, because yeah. if you can imagine the geography, the Nile runs through Sudan and it goes through the largest marsh in the world called the Sud. And the oh. south of Sudan is really just undeveloped bush, most of it. I mean, there was one paved road when I went there in this massive region. And um, the Nile is navigable through the Sud. And so a lot of explorers had gone down there, you know, in the sort of 19... 30s through the 1960s, these anthropologists from Oxford had gone down there to sort of discover the peoples of South Sudan who were very diverse, lots of different um, <laughs> tribes. Tribe is a very loaded word, but that's how South Sudanese people refer to themselves. Hmm. They're different ethnic groups. And then eventually, you know, uh, um, Oxford anthropologists have kind of come to terms with the, how complicit they were in the colonial enterprise because what they were basically doing was cataloging the people of South Sudan to make the, the subjugation easier for the government, um, the British government. Yeah. And a lot of them were funded by the British government to go down there and do, you know, discover the different cultures and learn the languages and um, write it all down. And so now there's this kind of reckoning that's happening amongst anthropologists in Oxford. But another really interesting point is like, there used to be this department of empire studies, you know, of colonial studies. Wow. And when the, when the British empire fell, it just very quietly changed its name to the department of international development. 
and continued as it was before. So just it just goes to show you that that whole enterprise of international development and international aid and intervention, how it's really a continuation of colonialism and yeah, colonial yeah. intervention. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Do yeah, do things our way. Yeah, and it's amazing. I was talking to a friend earlier today. She actually lives in Thailand. And I was telling her about what's happening now, you know, basically a black man, you know, gets beaten up by a cop and is killed. And she says, wow, that's really sad, but it's not so surprising. I mean, it happens right. in Thailand uh, there. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about colonialism and, you know, even though a nation may be independent, but yet still, you know, there is a government or there is a culture that wants to still push its own um, narrative or its own uh, culture on a people. Um, it's sort of, I mean, we're, we're not used to it here in the United States, but still, I mean, with Breonna Taylor and, um, you know, the individual who died in uh, Minnesota, we're sort of getting a taste of that. We're sort of getting a taste of what's happening, you know, out in, out in the world. Norman, how have you been feeling this week? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a crazy week. Um, on a personal level, <laughs> uh, I got a toothache that is just bugging the heck out of me. So I'm hoping it's just an abscess or something and it'll go away. But oh, goodness, that's yeah. been my week. Yeah. And then uh, Dexter graduated yeah. Wednesday. So oh, my good for him. just graduated high school and we did the online graduation because of what else can you do? Yeah, yeah. Um, which was... Fascinating to see how they could bring all the tired and boring cliches of graduation to the internet. It was, you know, watching him and he's just like rolling his eyes and eh. And I'm like, well, that's how I felt when I went through it. That's how everybody felt, I think, when they went through it. You know, it's just something you go through. So we got to have that rite of passage. It was very cool. Very nice. Nasima, you have a little one. I don't think she's of age yet to, uh, how old is she? She's seven. Seven years old. That's the that's great age. Now, Nassim, here's a question for you. I mean, as a seven, I mean, do you talk to your daughter? I don't know if your daughter is at the age of asking questions. When I was around seven or eight years old, mm -hmm. uh, the only big incident, I mean, there was the bicentennial that happened in 1976. But there was also, um, Norman and I have been talking about it, the Atlanta child murders that happened uh, on the East Coast. Uh, right. And that was a big thing. And it was big in the news. And I was asking a lot of questions to my mom and dad. Is your little one asking questions about what's happening in the world today or no? No, I have, you know, it's really funny. My friends and I are, are sort of stepping back and think, rethinking how we talk to our children about race and how we introduce them to the horrors of the world. <laughs> My approach had been to, you know, never refer to people by the color of their skin when we talk about our friends, but to refer to them by like what they had been wearing or maybe like, you know, their personality and to sort of allow her to get to know people before she thinks in terms of labels, you know, and also she, I don't think she really even knows what war is yet. She goes to this progressive school in Berkeley and they speak three languages and, you know, she has this very privileged life and I think I wanted to extend her innocence because I'm a child of war and revolution and I grew up in a house full of trauma and parents always with the news on so wow. I wanted her to really love people before she thought about the differences between people but now I think that that's really a luxury and a privilege and that 
we need to start having those conversations because I want her to be a change maker in the world and I want her to be a conscious person. So maybe seven is a good place to start having those conversations. Yeah. Um, On some level, sure. Yeah. And you know, she has, I always thought she has two parents who are academics, you know, who, un, who can explain the world to her in its subtleties and that she, I just always took it for granted that she would be a person who would be, who would understand race and politics in a very, you know, holistic way and choose the, the side of justice. And I just took it for granted that, you know, we would introduce those things to her and that I, we wouldn't rely on schools to do it. And um, I don't, you know, I don't need her children's books to do it. Mm -hmm. And that even the things that she thinks are fun or, you know, the popular culture things, I would give her context for them. But now I think it's really important for her to know the city that she lives in and to know that the people that she interacts with don't have the same experience of the world as she does. I mean, we're brown people. I'm very dark skinned. She's very dark skinned. We're not, but we don't have, I mean, there's a very unique experience for every subgroup in a society. Like Sudan is a really good example. North Sudanese and South Sudanese people are both brown skinned Africans, but they have a completely different experience of race. So I think context matters. And in the context of America, we are very privileged maybe Absolutely. not as privileged as some people, and maybe in a particular, if we lived in a particular part of America, we would be more targeted. But I think that with having privilege comes responsibility and I need to start teaching her that. Yeah, I think we are doing perfectly fine. I think, you know, I think a child should be a child. And, uh, you know, uh, I know that when I was young, Sesame Street was sort of the outsource of sort of teaching children about, race and diversity and sort of getting along together. And I think when a child starts asking questions, you can start saying, okay, well, if you're asking the questions, then I think you're ready to know. And then mm -hmm. you can get into the more deeper questions or when incidences pop up and all of a sudden there's something in the paper and there's something that everyone's talking about in the news, then you know um, it sort of forces, I guess, your hand and sort of saying, well, maybe I should start talking about this. But I think a child should be a child. Um, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think, you know, um, I mean, Norman, was it that way? I mean, when you were a child, Norman, I mean, did you, were, were you curious about things or were you allowed to sort of be a kid? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget. Uh, Martin Luther King got killed and it was all over the news. And there was rioting all over America, right? That's right, because you were around 10, weren't you? No, not even. I was, what is that, 68? I was going on eight years old. Wow. That's um, summer's age right now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, and it's weird because you keep making these connections right now to 1968. But um, as a child, <laughs> I'm watching. So mom is home. She's cooking dinner. I'm watching the news. And, you know, it's Walter Cronkite or whoever telling us all this horrible <laughs> stuff about what's going on in the country. And I run in and I say, mommy, mommy. Um, you know, they said Martin Luther King died. Um, I hope Michael's going to be okay, my younger brother. And she says, oh, why? And I said, because they said it's going to be a really hard time for black people. Mm. He's darker than me. Mm -hmm. so I was like, so I hope he's going to be okay. And she's like, you're black, fool. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked away going, oh, okay, I really don't understand this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can, and, and you know, we live in a bubble here in the Bay Area. <clears throat> so it's easy for us to think post-racial or, you know, uh, race and color doesn't really matter. And then you step outside and you realize that, I mean, I remember being in Minnesota. I was in Minnesota with a bunch of friends 
immediately after a theater gig and we did, we did a driving thing and we drove all the way from San Francisco through the Midwest to Minnesota and it seemed very, very peeful and warm and, you know, I didn't feel any bad vibes or whatever. And now I'm hearing, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd, apparently there's been a lot of things going on in Minnesota. You know, this is usually when I think of an explosion like this, usually it's not just one incident. Like with Rodney King, you have a group of black people saying, hey, this has been going on for a long time. And now this is the tip of the iceberg. And I, I, that's what I take out of, out of this. So that's what I find fascinating, you know, because yeah. it's not just George Floyd, you know, they're, they're underneath right. the whole George Floyd thing. There's a, some of those, there's some systematic stuff going on. Absolutely. I mean, we were just talking about colonialism. And what I wanted to say earlier is that America is still very much in the thick of its colonial enterprise. Right. The, the history of America is the history of racism and slavery. It's not inextricable. It's not as if it was an episode in this otherwise, you know, beautiful dem democratic experiment. Right. The entire democratic experiment is intertwined with this horrible subjugate, colonial subjugation of many different groups of people brought over from a continent to, for economic purposes. And, you know, c colonialism, when it was done on site, right, like in Africa or South America or whatever, was very much about slavery. It was about enslaving people into a particular culture or into a particular economy, you know, making servants of people with the guise of sort of civilizing them or educating them or um, converting them to the right religion. And America is actually behind a lot of African countries in some respects, if you think about it, because we don't talk about that at all. We've somehow managed to put the difficult conversations away by making them taboo to have mm -hmm. as, a, as a whole country, like on a national level. Like we don't talk about this at all, you know, coming out of the White House, obviously not now, but even before, you know, I would even argue that President Obama didn't really talk about it. And I think right. his reasons had to do with, yeah, yeah his reasons were, he had to do with like showing how a black, president is the same as a white president, right? Like to say, mm -hmm. like, I'm the president of all the people in this country. And I think he right. was right to do that because it was the first. Yeah. But we he don't even have those conversations when we have a black president. It's, we're so um, censored mm -hmm. in this country. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think capitalism has a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, we pride ourselves at being the richest country on earth. And we have so many toys. I mean, you know, how do you have a protest where people run out in the street when, even the homeless person has a has an iPhone. Yeah. Even when you know, you, right. Yeah, you know, you have you. Everyone has a TikTok account or a a YouTube account, and mm -hmm. they're streaming live on you know PlayStation or whatever. So it's easy to get distracted. And you know, for those who are the imperialists, who are you know, I would say, you know, let's say a Republican Party, a hardline Republican Party that wants you to be distracted. We don't want you to talk about race. We don't want you to talk about gerrymandering or, um, <clears throat> you know, poll taxes and, you know, the, the miseducation. You know, I was reading a book that, you know, a lot of young kids in the Deep South, they were given a history book which totally misinterprets, you know, slavery and uh, discrimination and uh, segregation. So uh, it's easy to get distracted in the United States. Yeah. It's easy to, and that's one of the reasons why you're right in the scene, we don't talk about race. 
No, and it, it's everywhere. I mean, maternal mortality for black women is so high in this country. Yeah. Right? If you're a black woman and you go to give birth, you're more likely to die than if you're a white woman. Yeah. I mean, that's a, those are like the sort of daily ways in which we subjugate the bodies of people of color, but also in which we kill them, we let them die. A, a black man being attacked violently on the street by a police officer is a very visible form of this subjugation. But there's so many tiny forms of this subjugation. I, um, I left academia two years ago to work in criminal justice reform, and I work for the probation department now. And one of the, the patterns that we see that we want to try to unravel that's so hard to do is that very early in the public education system, young black boys who come from families of poverty or who might have slight learning disabilities or behavioral issues are labeled unteachable. And so then they're not taught, right? They're just disciplined. Mm. And they get further and further behind, and then they sort of start to be feared. There's like a transition, I don't know, at a certain age where they're obviously disruptive because they can't learn because no one's trying to teach them and no one's addressing any learning disabilities or trauma in the home or just even like nutrition, you know, really basic, like, are you getting enough to eat? And then as once they're labeled, you know, a problem child or a child who's unteachable, then they sort of become the label morphs into like dangerous or violent or criminal. And then the police get called every time there's a fight. And then that's the sort of, you know, school to prison pipeline right. where you see this, this school system totally fails our children. Yeah, and I wonder, and it's interesting, I, mean, I think all three of us have a sort of a tie-in with this because, you know, Norman, you've done a lot of work with Each One Reach One, you yeah. know, bringing theater to, um, the kids who are in the juvenile facility. And I've worked as a paralegal for the DA's office for 23 years. And so I wow. see a lot of these uh, cases, you know, go across. I deal with white collar crime, but right next to my unit used to be Carew, the child abduction recovery unit, but it dealt with domestic stuff. Like right. let's say a family can't hang with, you know, their child because their child is wilding out and they don't know what to do. And uh, because the teachers are too afraid to teach a child, um, mm -hmm. And I also believe, and Norman, I, I want to, you know, ping, you know, throw this at you as well. Well, actually, the both of you, I really do believe some cops believe, and I, I think some people believe, a black man can take a beating. You know, oh, well, I just, right. I just, I just, you know, put my knee on George Floyd's neck, but, you know, he's black, you know, he can handle it. Um, right. He's and an I, animal, so I can just restrain him the way I'd restrain an animal. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I think, I mean, are you... Are you surprised, I'll ask the both of you, of the outrage, not only in, I mean, there are, there are protests happening all over the United States. Yep. And, it, you know, that didn't happen with Breonna Taylor, um, who was a black woman who, you know, because of a failed search warrant, uh, was killed by cops. And it didn't right. happen with um, the uh, Aubrey. I, I thought that the Ahmaud Aubrey case would be a thing that would uh, strike a national thing. Why do you think it happened this time? Do you think it was just, you know, the last straw or what do you, what no. do you think? Yeah. That's plus a video. The yeah, video that's right. Is so graphic. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think so. There are a lot of videos, graphic videos. It's really interesting. If you look at history. <laughs> yes, you look at history. Yeah. And it, you know, it's like, I have to say that I, there are certain lines that I can't cross, you know, and those are, those videos um, are, are one of, the lines, right? I can't watch people being brutalized by police. I have to manage my own trauma. I work in a field where there's a lot of vicarious trauma. I can't watch that. I can't watch children being hurt, you know? 
Yeah. Right. Just knowing that it happens is enough for me. But the, to answer your question, I mean, it's really history. If you look at history, the inciting incident for like revolution and war and like some massive political event is always something really small. It's like almost that it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and then someone says boo and it just blows up. Right. So I almost feel like what sets it off is sort of random. I mean, this was obviously an awful situation, but I feel like there's been so many, right? Like you're, yeah. you're selling gum on the street or, you know, like there's, there's so many black men that I've seen this happen to on videos, you know, mm, yeah. on social media. And women, this I mean, Sandra Bland is back in the news. Oh, tell me about that. Just, you know, that this is bringing up again the, for our, those who are saying, well, you just have to give the system a chance to work things out. It's like, you know what, this woman got pulled over for a traffic stop and died. Um, no, let's, let's not just let the system work this out. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm, Nassim, what did you think about, uh, it's funny, you know, listening to Trump and, you know, once again, he put his foot in his mouth and didn't even want to address it yesterday when he had his, you know, full press conference. He wanted to talk mm -hmm. about China and how they're at fault or Hong Kong is at fault for COVID-19 when it happened in another region in China. So, you know, uh, but he didn't want to address his snafu, you know, uh, his uh, statement. I forget what it was. Um, if you... If, if you're looting, you're shooting, which is right. based on a 1967 comment uh, by a mayor who basically gave his um, his uh, police department the authority right. to uh, shoot uh, Miami police chief. Yeah, yeah Miami police chief. Um, but you and I, Nassim, we were in the Berkeley Rep. That's how you and I met, uh, uh, learning, you know, playwriting. Oh, when wow. when Trump was elected, you know, we were mm -hmm. looking at our phones and sort of, oh my God, he got elected. So that was uh, the worst class ever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, did did it did it shock you? And um, are you more optimistic now, twenty twenty? What what do you think? No. Why should I be optimistic? I don't have any reason <laughs> to be optimistic. No. I mean, I think that the system itself is broken. It's not about you know let the system run its course. The system is based on inequality. Capitalism is extremely flawed. People in this country are not really politically active in the sense of like, you know, as long as we can buy our consumer goods, as long as we have a job that we like and, you know, we're paying our mortgage, we can close our eyes to the experience of other people. And it is sort of the extreme, extreme of capitalism that does that. And I don't feel, I think that what's happening now with Trump and I don't listen to him because I don't think he has anything worthwhile to say. So I don't know why he said what he said in whatever speech he gave, but I'm surprised he didn't say there were some fine people in the crowd, you know? Right. Um, but I think what he's an example of is the sort of the, that like vulgar extreme of if you take this road of capitalism and this road of sort of white um, supremacy, to its extreme, you get someone like Trump with the followers that he has speaking to each other in a language that doesn't make sense. It's ahistorical. It doesn't acknowledge the other cultures of the world. It doesn't acknowledge the history. It's just sort of like making up facts and talking to each other in this like gibberish. And we're all watching it. We're totally shocked. And people like me who are scholars who are involved in politics are saying like, how come the smart people can't do anything about like where are all the smart people why are the 
stupid people like running things. And it's because that's the way the system is designed. That's the way the system here is designed. It's right. to prevent this sort of elite, intellectual elite from taking power away from landowners, you know, slave owners. It is um, absolutely the way that it's supposed to work here. Yeah, so that, we have to ask ourselves, do we want it to continue to be built this way? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting that you, um, you, you brought up a good point about are devaluing intellectualism, the, the ability to think and to reason and to talk about these things. I remember when Adelaide, I remember reading about Adelaide Stevenson when he ran against Eisenhower and the biggest problem that people had was that, well, he's an egghead. And um, <laughs> it, it's funny, the rise of Eisenhower, I mean, he was the, the guy who won the war or, you know, he was the grand, right. he was general, the general, yeah. general of, the, of the army, but he had a problem, you know, dealing with the Republicans in the 50s, you know, um, there was Brown v. Board of Education, but he had to deal with sending troops to, you know, alleviate the, the friction between the Southerners and, and the Black folks who just wanted to vote. But also just dealing with the, uh, the military industrial complex, dealing with uh, mm -hmm. the folks um, like I remember Gary Powers, the U-2 spy plane or whatever. Right. But, but, but even, you know, Eisenhower himself had a problem controlling his own party individuals doing things behind his back and his last state of the union address he talked about the danger of the military industrial complex and individuals sort of taking over democracy you know and i think that's really really when it began i mean when we talk about what's happening with america you know we can have the shootings and we can say hey we need to change things yesterday i heard you know gavin newsom talk about we need to change things and the minnesota mayor um you know talking about we need to change things. And you hear the speeches, but it's like, where's there gonna be action? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In any case, okay, so let's, uh, let's, get, let's get into uh, an origin story. So you are, I believe you're Iranian. Is that right, Nassim? Yes, I was born in Tehran, Iran in 1976. Wow. How, how was life growing up there? Well, it was violent and pretty awful right off the bat because what we had was a similar situation of um, government oppression, you know, state-sanctioned violence against people, and also this just very rapid uh, modernization that happened in a in in a Western model that clashed with the with the local culture. And the difference in Iran is that Iran has thousands of years of history and it has a right. very cohesive, distinct culture. So it, you know. Um, people had a lot of, had a really clear identity of who they were. And then the king was kind of a puppet of America and he came in and, wanted, and modernized and it was very Yeah, this, this, was, this was the Shah, right? The, the Shah? Shah, yeah. Yeah. He forcibly, um, he forcibly settled the, um, the sort of uh, nomadic people and the, the reforms that he made were really, you know, traumatizing and he was corrupt. He was, you know, he had a secret police and they were torturing people. But for, you know, many, many different reasons over the course of the previous century, Iranians took to the streets and protests just continued and continued. And it was uniquely a middle class revolution in the sense of like everybody was involved, the merchant class, the middle class, intellectuals, communists, you know, peasants. And, the, you know, when protests continue for long enough, it turns into a revolution. So I was born a couple of years before the revolution. 
And then in 1980, Iraq declared war on Iran and then a war started. So then they were shelling um, the city. We had to, you know, hide in our basement. And then in 1981, we were able to leave the country. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I remember, I think you have to be of, the, of a particular age um, to even read the newspapers about the Shah of Iran and, you know, this really a horrible picture that, you know, that all Americans saw of this individual who was starting this revolution. And of course, the, the, uh, the Iran hostage crisis uh, during the Carter mm-hmm. administration, 444 days. And mm-hmm. I was really, I mean, I was a young kid, but I was of that age of mm-hmm. just absorbing the news. And uh, but you I was get... in the army, and I was terrified we were going to war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think Iranians now are terrified that America's going to. It's like this perpetual weird war with Iran. But the right. context for the hostage crisis, I think that maybe some of the information didn't get here, was that for many years the the embassy, the American <laughs> embassy in Tehran, was like this fortress, this massive installation that was full of. Um, intelligence officers from the, right. from the United States and it was known to be like a hub of the CIA and so right. when the revolution happened it was an obvious target of people saw the Shah as not of their own country so they felt that they had this external leader and this external it was basically a colonial experience right they You're wanted yeah and so they saw that as like the palace of the king right the palace of the foreign dictators and wanted to make you know, make a big, bold global statement. And also recall that the hostage takers were young men, mostly. They were like in their early 20s, late Uh teens. You know, these are people in a very idealistic phase of their lives and kind of, you know, like full of energy to make change and maybe kind of impulsive and not thinking about like global geopolitics and the impact of it. And the potential consequences. I mean, it could have been much worse than what it was. Yeah, I mean, on. yeah, I mean, the parallel. I mean, there's a parallel. I mean, you know, young individuals who are going off to war right now, American soldiers, you know, full of patriotism. I mean, you know, that can easily. I could see the parallels between that. But how did your family make it? I mean, there are a lot of families. I'm sure Iranian families that did not make it to America. No, how did you, I mean, it was. It's a real it? sad story. So my family left after the war had started. It was about. Uh, one year already of the war. And that war lasted, I think, you know, years, like I think eight years, I for some reason can't remember off the top of my head, but one million people died, one million Iranians. Yeah, it was a really horrible war. It was a war of attrition. So it was like a stalemate war and Iraq used chemical weapons um, that were given to them by the Americans. Mm-hmm. Donald, ask Donald Rumsfeld. But that's part of what happen, comes later is like we're convinced that Saddam Hussein has chemical weapons because we, we gave them to him. Uh, but so they used chemical weapons. So many, many Iranians died. And the problem was that the Iranian military conscripted boys as young as <laughs> And I had an older brother. So I was five by the time we left, but my brother was eight. And my parents were terrified for him. Like, what if, you know, we can't bribe our way out of this? So they wanted to flee, but we had waited too long to leave, so we couldn't take anything with us. Mm-hmm. And then my father got, you know, uh, arrested. Um, so basically, a lot of horrible, scary events happened, and we man- managed to make it to Germany, but with nothing, with n- none of our possessions or money or anything so we went from like my dad had built his dream home and he had made a business and he had been really successful to we're just scraping by and immigrants in a european country hoping that we can go back soon 
then after four years in Germany, we realized this is a permanent state. We're not going to ever be able to go back. And so then we immigrated to the United States. Mm -hmm. when, did, when did you make it to the United States? What year? It was 1985 and we landed in Los Angeles, which was a huge culture shock because I was expecting like the land of ET, you know, like suburbs and friendly <laughs> neighbors. And LA was like this place where every kind of immigrant from everywhere in the world was desperately trying to make it and they didn't have time for you. <laughs> they weren't like waving to you on their way to work. And they ha it had a very complicated race politics that we didn't understand because, you know, we didn't have those race categories in Iran, different race categories. Right. And um, my parents were very involved in the Iranian community and, you know, I went to public schools in LA. Um, and we were, I was there until I went through high school and then I moved to the Bay Area. Oh, wow. Which was a huge, like, breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I mean, there's so many transplants. I'm from the East Coast and, uh, you know, Norman is from Indiana. So, if it, there are a lot of folks in the Bay Area, it's like, ah, finally, I'm here. Yeah. Um, oh, but mostly for me, it's Southern Cal. I mean, Indiana is where I was born, but I grew up in Southern Cal. Were you happy to leave? Oh, I couldn't wait. Me too. I, I turned 18 and I went in the Army. Um, and when I got back, I did a year or two of school, and then I got out of the, out of the Southern California, L.A. area. I was done. And I fully expected, I'm the oldest, I fully expected all my siblings, as soon as they got out of school, to follow. Nope. Everybody else stayed set until, really until recently, like within the last decade, I guess. <laughs> so it's been weird to watch. I, yeah. I don't know why anybody, well, I, my other experience of it was seeing everybody else thrive. So LA is a positive, nurturing place for some people. It just wasn't for me. I feel the same way. Yeah, I, yeah, I get the feeling when people arrive at LA, the land of Lala, uh, even Stevie Wonder wrote a song about it where people come and they expect to you know, be on the top of the hill uh, to receive everything that they saw in the movies and everything they'll be discovered or, or whatever. And you know, usually the reality is completely different. I was going to ask about your, were you involved in the arts at all uh, when you were a child? I mean, did you, uh, not maybe not as a child, but even as a teenager or when you were in school, like, did you do plays and anything like that? Absolutely. I was a dancer and I joined a dance, a children's dance company. And um, I loved to perform and I did theater in high school and uh, junior high so I was a theater kid and the problem with LA if you're interested in those kind of performing arts is that it's too big it's you know the it's like a an ocean that you find yourself in and uh, and it's kind of like broken dreams everywhere and then you see the industry and you go to school with kids with parents in the industry and it seems very much like it's who you know and it's closed where in the Bay Area it's very easy to it's a small you know like it's a smaller pond to um, enter into the industry. So LA for me made having a life of art seem unreachable. Even though, you know, that's where everybody goes to be an actor, to be a performer or writer of some kind, that's where you go because that's where the opportunities are. But it didn't seem possible there. And not until later in my life, when, you know, it was a dream I had to let go of when I became an adult because it seemed, I saw so many people around me who had moved to LA to have a career, um, who had ended up just with no access or were teaching acting classes, but didn't have any work of their own. 
And it wasn't until much later in my life, you know, like a midlife crisis phase where I just said, you know, now that I'm going to do it. And it seemed here that so many more things were possible. And also maybe being older and not having that adolescent need to like be at the top or be successful, but I could define success in my own way. And that made it so much easier. So if I was going to mentor a young person now, I would say define success in small steps for yourself. Don't look to everyone else's definition of success because it feels uh, really demoralizing and unattainable. And also when I was growing up, I didn't see my face anywhere, not in plays, not in, uh, not on television, not in print, you know, like Middle Eastern women or men were just like invisible. We didn't exist. Uh, And now you kind of see these like smaller characters in television shows coming up and now there's opportunities for actors from a Middle Eastern background. No, that's fantastic. Um, I wanted to get into your writing. I mean, you, you know, if it weren't for COVID-19, and let's not forget about that with everything else going on, you would have had a play up at the Exit Theater. Um, it's being pushed yeah. back a year, which is good. I'm glad they're still going to do it. But um, I wanted to, can you talk a little bit about what that production was and how you sort of got into writing? Yes, absolutely. Well, I'll first tell you about this play this summer. It's because it's a, I'm really proud of it and it's a really exciting project. It's called A People's History of the 20th Century and it is the brainchild of Stuart Basel, Uh who is an amazing uh, playwright and performer and director in the Bay Area. And he has actually been an amazing person in my career for my profession in terms of encouraging me and exposing me to opportunities. He runs the San Francisco Olympians Festival and he I think was artistic director at Custom Made Theater for a period. He's just someone who really believes in giving younger playwrights or new playwrights opportunities and doesn't require like a long resume of experience in theater. You know, you know even though he and his inner circle are probably all theater nerds and can you know have all this information at their disposal he doesn't see that as like a necessary um background to have an entry into the theater arts so he put this play together and he basically um recruited 10 playwrights well nine including him and each uh, i assigned each of us a decade of the 20th century we got to write a short 10 minute play and the plays we worked together we met throughout all of last year and put the 10 plays together into one long play about the 20th century. Uh, it was so fun, it was really fun. The plays are different, very different, um, and they some are more personal and quiet, some are more sort of like epic and deal with bigger themes. And uh, it was really fun. So it was gonna run for about three weeks this summer at the Exit Theater, and then when the pandemic happened, the Exit Theater administration decided that they were gonna just move all of their schedule for the summer you know, postpone it for a whole year and put all of those plays on the following summer. But to answer your question about how I got into playwriting, so I um, started to write seriously in 2016. I had actually been writing a novel prior to that, but I started writing a play in 2016 and I started taking classes at Berkeley Rep and that was a really amazing place for me. I don't know if it was the same for you, but uh, I met a lot of great people in those early classes. When I think my first class was an acting class with um, an acting coach called James Wagner. He's based in LA and he has, uh, he's an amazing coach, an acting coach and an amazing actor. And he has a, 
a following. I took his first class and I learned very quickly that all the people in his class took his class regularly because he would come up from LA like sort of twice a year. And the people I met in that class were amazing and they're doing really amazing things now. I know you did an interview with Joyce Hu. She was in that class. Ah, She's, Joyce Hu, yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Kate Cryan, she ended up uh, founding a theater called the 51st uh, Theater Company. <laughs> and I don't, bless you. Oh. Um, and then uh, Marie, Marika Kuzma, I don't know if you know her. She was in that class with me. She had been the choral director. The, the head of, you know, the conductor, I think it's called a conductor for a choir, but anyway, at UC Berkeley, and she had retired, and she sort of decided to try acting, and like very quickly, she uh, was doing big plays. She actually was an understudy at a play at the Berkeley Rep, and then ended up being able to be in one of the performances, and she moved to the East Coast recently to keep pursuing her career, but she had a one-woman show called Unsung Stories that's autobiographical that was at the, um, it was at Counterpulse and I saw it, it was one of the best pieces of theater I've ever seen. She, she wove through music, like she sung, uh, she sang all different kinds of types of music through this one piece and I loved it. Um, wow. Who else was, there was Deborah Cortez who is, she's oh, so prolific. Yeah, yeah uh, formerly Deborah Murphy, uh, she, uh, well, she's, yeah. Yeah, she uh, she's working with uh, oh Generation Theater with David. Yeah, Blair. she's like with everybody. She yeah. is. I've never met anyone that prolific. I mean, she's in like two plays a month. I feel I don't know right now, but mm -hmm. she was there. Um, and then uh, um, yeah, a bunch of other really interesting people. And actually, Deborah was the one who told me to. So I was developing. I was also in playwriting classes. I took a playwriting class with a theater director called Edward Morgan at Berkeley Rep. And he was an amazing uh, coach as well. I took a class called Turning Shakespeare on Her Head. And it was all about, you know, uh, sort of playing roles outside of your, like, what you look like, basically, your mm -hmm. gender, your race, or whatever, your age. And so it was actually Deborah Cortez who told me about this program that Custom Made Theater did um, called their, their uh, New Works program. So I applied, I had a play, written a full length play that I think you're familiar with, uh, that um, called Seek the Water. And I submitted my play to that program and it got accepted. So that was, I think, the 2018 New Works program. And the first reading that I had for this play at Custom Made Theater was directed by Callan Thibodeau. Um, and then we had another reading that was directed by Stuart Bazell. And so that's how Stuart and I got to know each other well. And then in the meantime, I did the Atlas Theater, uh, the Atlas um, program through Theater Bay Area, right. which I don't know if you know about it. It's this- Oh, say something about it though, because it's worth, you know, it's, it's a great- Yeah, program. theater, it's a great program. Yeah, Theater Bay Area runs a, uh, a program for theater professionals that helps them sort of get the skills they need to take their career to the next level. And it's mostly like professional skills, not creative skills. It's mm -hmm. called, gosh, I can't remember what the acronym stands oh, for. What, oh, what Atlas stands for? Uh, yeah. yeah, what does it stand for? Anyway. Yeah, don't. Uh, so the person that runs it is, um, Dale Albright, and he's amazing. He's one of, he's another one of these people that really, really supports local 
theater makers and helps kind of launch careers. So the program is for actor. They have three, three kind of paths, actors, directors, and playwrights. So I did the playwright path and um, it was a great experience. So there, it's not, you don't have to be, so you can be anywhere in your career. It's just helping you get to the next stage. So you could be really, really successful local playwright, but you want to become a national playwright. Or you could be someone who has one play like me and just want to sort of enter the theater world with your one play. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, Atlas, advanced training, leading artists to success. There you go. Right on. And we've, and we've had Dale Albright, Albright on. Uh, he's, he was a fantastic guest. And also, I, I was on stage with him. Uh, we acted. Uh, it was Skin of Our Teeth at the Douglas Morrison Theater. Uh, so it's a what a small world. Uh, I did have a question for you in the scene. How did you get into writing? Because writing, I mean, that's a different hat to put on. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, I wanted to talk about what you learned at Oxford, um, because it sounds like you were, you know, you have a drive for um, humanity and you know what's happening mm -hmm. as far as your political studies. Like, how did yeah. I'm thinking one led to another? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot at Oxford. I learned. There was part of my learning was, you know, the coursework, being around these amazing people and the departments and the incredible um, minds that are there and the environment that they create for learning. But then the other part of it was being in a medieval city, a very elite institution in a class based society. You know, the United Kingdom is different than the United States in terms of race. They're very class-based. Um, and then also seeing Americans, you know, the Americans who come to Oxford on Rhodes Scholarships and Marshall Scholarships are, are basically American elites too. So you kind of see your own country from afar in a very interesting way. So it was a, it was, you, you know, you could see the future leaders of the United States, the future congressmen and women, and, you kind of saw the way that the world is ordered and this kind of hierarchy. So that I learned a lot being in Oxford and living in this other culture and looking back at America. And um, I decided, I went there because I wanted to study forced migration. You know, I had been a person who had been displaced. My family had migrated across the world and we were immigrants in America and kind of didn't really ever, didn't totally fit. You know, there wasn't a place for us, for our culture. Uh, and I wanted to, and, and it was right after September 11th, and I was in San Francisco when it happened. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I wanted to go out and see the world because here it's like, you know, San Francisco is like this big wedding cake, beautiful city. And it seems like this idealistic, like perfect place to live that didn't have a lot of, you couldn't see the struggles that people have in the world. I mean, I don't necessarily think that now, but my 25 year old self thought that then that I needed to go out into the world to see the reality of people's struggles. So I wanted to study forced migration um, and I got into uh, a program for international development and very quickly I decided that I wanted to um, spend my time doing research and studying Africa. And Oxford is a really good place to study Africa because it has like hundreds of years of history of scholarship in Africa for horrible reasons because of the colonial enterprise. But as a result, it has a huge African studies department with some of the best scholars in the world there. And you can go to Africa very easily. Whereas if you were in a graduate program in California to get all of the permissions and approvals to go that far away and get the funding, it's just a lot harder. 
And also like at UC Berkeley, you probably have like one person in the political science department who studies Africa, maybe two. So you don't really have that really rich dialogue. I mean, I had colleagues, young people in graduate programs. One colleague, um, Phil Clark, he was going into refugee camps in Eastern Congo where the Rwandan genocidaires had fled oh, wow, wow, yeah. and talking to them. And it's crazy, you think, how dangerous is that? But then at the same time, you're like, we should know what they have to say. You know, that's what a, a scholar does. You're not going to judge your informants. You're going to go and say, like, tell me why you did this thing. Like, what motivated oh. you? Like, what were your right. reasons? And so he did this amazing research. And then there's also um, uh, uh, this woman, Marika Scomaris, I don't know how to say her name, but she went into the bush and met with Joseph Coney of the Lord's Resistance Army wow, and interviewed wow. him. Yeah. yeah, so you can imagine I'm around these amazing people that are fearless, doing great things. So a lot of them had been former journalists who had like decided to go and do a PhD and become um, scholars and academics. So it was an amazing experience. I went to Sudan and I had, um, you know, between 2006 and 2008, I had um, a, an opportunity to really be on the ground when that country was going through this massive transformation. I spent a lot of time interviewing Sudan People's Liberation Army commanders. I, um, you know, we, I had a research assistant. We just would go on the back of his motorcycles to the commander's homes and knock on the door until they would talk to me because there was like no cell phone network. There were no roads. There was, it was just completely like starting a whole, you know, a new country and building a government from scratch. So it was a really exciting, interesting time. Yeah. So does your writings reflect, I mean, you know, when we were together at the Berkeley Rep um, studying playwriting, you were writing a lot about what, you know, your experience in Iran. And I imagined, mm -hmm. you know, what you saw in the Sudan. I imagine your writing as of right now reflects that. Um, is there sort of, is there, talk about the social element to writing, you know, because, and I mentioned that because of what's happening right now, whether it be COVID-19, dealing with Trump, or dealing with, you know, black violence by the hands of the police or the barbecue Beckys of the world. I think there's a role in art, in writing, in mm -hmm. theater productions that sort of deal, that talk, that mm -hmm. speaks truth to power. It's a, it's a challenging subject, though, because there's so many people who want theater to be that escape. You know, yeah. like, get away from reality. I don't want to deal with this. So it's always interesting mm -hmm. to see how those two things intersect. Yeah, what do you, well, what do you think, Nessie? So I think you have to be really careful because an audience is smart and savvy and they know when you're trying to teach them something and they will reject that. The way that I approached it more was I've had these really unique experiences, you know, and I wanted to create a window into these moments in time that I lived in uh, or that, you know, were fictional, but like reflected something in a moment in time that I had access to for people who may not have ever been to Sudan or who may not have ever been to Iran. And I think if you try to, the approach I take is to say, you know, what have I, what, what is my perspective? What's unique about my perspective or my experiences that might be interesting to somebody else? And then if you present that in a really authentic way, that, that speaking truth to power, that messaging comes through really, comes through subtly and audiences take it and make with it what, what they will, right? So they like glean a lesson from it on their own. So if you tell a story of, you know, a, a person who 
had been subjugated and had responded through violence and you tell it in a really personal way with history and context and anguish. I think you reveal a lot um, about the reasons for violence and the impetus to violence and the role that violence plays in political change or in society. And rather than if you like make a message play, um, I think you have to be like really brilliant to have a message you want to get across and sit down and like, design a play around that without yeah. alienating without, audiences. Exactly, without preaching to them. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle that I deal with uh, uh, a great deal because you have an idea, you have a message you want to get across, mm -hmm. but you don't want to preach to them. I remember, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm not confusing your play because we had another, there was another writer named Dipti and I think uh, the two of you were writing sort of the same there was, a, there was a plot in, I think it's your play, let me know if it wasn't, where it really dealt with two, I think there were two women, but they were two sort of different cultures, but they were sort of connected together. I think one of the, um, the cool mm -hmm. things about your writing is that you don't necessarily talk about, let's say, the, you know, what's happening, but really just about two individuals or an individual dealing with, let's say, I don't know, food, or let's say mm -hmm. an item of clothing. And mm -hmm. that can be sort of the gateway towards mm -hmm. a bigger message. Am I confused? Yeah, food is a great topic uh, to, to, to like use to discuss culture. I think food is a brilliant, you know, it's like food and hair and fashion and those kinds of things are great sort of symbols of cultural difference and class difference and great ways of having conversations about those topics. But my play, I think the the play that I was writing when we were in a class together is called Seek the Water, and it was it takes place in an Iranian jail. <laughs> and it is a group of women who have been arrested uh, after going to a party. And one of them is Iranian-American, sort of is back to Iran for a visit, and the others have never left Iran since the revolution. And it's these two sort of versions of who I could have been uh, yeah, yeah, it, I'm, remember, I'm remembering now, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and of course there's a clash, you know, because you're, you know, Iranian culture has so many rules. There's this sense of like, you know, we're here and we're left behind and we live in this society with, you know, that's kind of oppressive and socially, you know, limits us a lot. And you guys are in America and you have all these fancy things and you have such an easy life. Then there's this reverse feeling of, I don't belong anywhere, you know, I don't have those, you have so, you're so rich in your culture and your belonging and your community and you never had to start over anywhere and you haven't had any hardship, you know, yeah, you live in Iran and you have dictators, but you've never had to make a whole new set of friends or start a new career, like you just didn't have that trauma. So it's almost like a competition of like, I live through war, my trauma is more important than yours and, and it happens through this three days in, in this prison. Through yeah, these conversations I, between these young girls. Yeah, I, I, I remember the, the connection. Yeah, it was a very strong. And obviously, I think you said that Custom Made, it, it got a reading at Custom Made Theater. Was that yeah, right? Yeah, we got, we got two readings. And then the subsequent year, it was in the New Works program with Custom Made. And then the subsequent year, it had a reading at the Playwright Center of San Francisco, mm -hmm. too. And that was a really good experience. Um, I think I was able to develop it over the course of those three readings to get it to this place that I'm happy with. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned a lot. It was my first play, so I learned all the things not to do, like don't yeah. don't write a play with thirteen characters, <laughs> you ah, know, because right. it's very hard to produce. Um, but I don't think I could have written it with 
fewer that play with fewer characters because they I needed to have so many perspectives because the guards the jail guards are also really involved in the play and they come from like poor families in Iran and you see the class differences portrayed through them. One of the cool things about your play is that you know you have it's both external and internal conflict. You have an external conflict of two individuals dealing with a society or a regime or a government that they're fighting against, which is the obvious thing. But then you have the internal, where you have two individuals from the same culture, but one is, let's say, I mean, it's, it's almost like a class. You know, one has sort of maybe assimilated into, you know, the upper rich class, and then you have another one who is more grounded. And these two are fighting against one another, but both are still dealing with the system. And it's very parallel to, you know, the African, you know, what African-Americans deal with. You know, let's say someone has made it big, a big rap star, Mm -hmm. and there's another one still on the streets or whatever. I mean, we dealt with an informant in Paris. You know, you have these these, uh, individuals who are battling, let's say, an oppressive American government, even though they're in Paris, but they're also fighting with one another. So I, I think, you know, those are wonderful little parallels and you have that in your play as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I absolutely think that in order to have a system of oppression, you need to have collaborators from the cohort of people that you're oppressing. That was true in slavery, that was true in colonialism, it's true in the criminal justice system. And by collaborators, I don't mean that they're sharing your agenda. It's just that you kind of, coerce people to work in the prison system. You know, there's a lot of black and brown people working in the, in corrections, in law enforcement. And it is, I don't know that it's a conscious strategy, but it, it is a really effective way of keeping things the way they are. You know, if you go down to any prison and you, you know, you look at the sort of demographic of the people who work in the prison, you see that oftentimes those jobs are opportunities for people of color, right? Like they are ways of getting, you know, bringing yourself out of whatever situation you're in. You know, it's a, it's a good job. It pays well. There's a pension. Um, but you're part of the system. You're part of the very You become system. part of the system. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, it's interesting, as you mentioned that, I think about Booker T. Washington, who at the turn of the century had created these uh, historical black colleges like Tuskegee Institute and a bunch of others. Mm-hmm. But those institutions were only made to educate the African-American to better, be better workers for the white folks, the Southern mm-hmm. white folks, to be better farmers. I don't think any of those colleges, you know, created lawyers or individuals to fight the system. And he had a big argument with W.E.B. Du Bois, who said, mm-hmm. hey, we cannot assimilate at, at, at all. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting subject matter as far as, you know, when do you, we have a system. I mean, you, we have to comply to a particular system. We don't have to comply all the way. Like I have to, if a cop stops me and says, hey, I need to see your ID, I can fight that or I could say, hey, I'm going to show you my ID, but I want to know why you're stopping me. So there mm-hmm. are always degrees to how far do you comply with the system before you cross that line and you've totally assimilated or you've totally become a part of the system. And how much do you resist? Like I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of folks talk about the, the people who are protesting and a lot of the people in power say, well, it's okay to protest, but you can't burn down Rite Aid. You can't burn down Target. 
you know, be a good protester than a bad protester. Got burned down for what reason? What was the spout again? Oh yeah, somebody got killed. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, what I would say to that is this country was founded on civil disobedience and uh, riots and destruction of property. And that uh, democracy globally was founded on um, moving away from the status quo through violence, through civil disobedience, through protest, through um, all of what we're seeing here. You know, it's a total hypocrisy to say that that it's counter to democracy. It, uh, it, it hurts capitalism, right? But, you know, Target, the, the protesters in Oakland that, you know, were out in the streets last night, they targeted corporations, right? Like yep. Walgreens, Target, Chase Bank. Those uh, yeah. entities are insured, <laughs> yeah. first yeah. of all. Right. So uh, not, but not, also, there were some white people who, I mean, I don't know. I think when we analyze this and we come back and look at it, we'll see that it's actually a lot more cynical than it looks. Like, I absolutely don't criticize people for going out into the streets and rioting. And, you know, rioting is very much a part of human history when you have no other tools at your disposal, when the system, when you can't work within the system. It's been hundreds of years, the system isn't helping us to work with it. But I think we're gonna discover that there were actually some right-wing white supremacists involved in some of the violence some of the destruction of property and undercover yeah. police yeah i saw there was one article where there was a police who had a mask on mm. and his ex-wife outed him <laughs> i thought that was funny well the, the police department his police department denies that he was in any way involved in it curiously they did not say he was here at this time or he was working they mm. they didn't Give him an alibi. They just said, oh, no, no, that wasn't our guy. Like, uh, was he the guy with the hammer and the umbrella? Uh, he was a he, guy. Um, he had like a blue mask on. He had a mask and Yeah, he had a big blue. mask on and his yeah. head covered. And he goes up and you see him like he was mm-hmm. the first one to break into something. Mm. Well, Rebecca Solnit just posted on Facebook today a video of a man, a white man wearing all black with a gas mask and for some reason, carrying an umbrella over him, his head with a hammer, just breaking the windows of stores. And um, a group of- um, uh, Minneapolis. See, that's the thing. It may not have been Oakland. I don't know why I thought it was Oakland because she's local, but it may have been Minneapolis, but it doesn't matter, right? Like throughout the country, this is happening. Mm. And they, a group of black teenagers follow him. They're videotaping him and they're following him. And I don't know what happens, but over the course of this, they discover he's a police officer. He's like wow. off duty. Yeah. And it's crazy that, yeah, he's just going around damaging property so that what? So the next day they can be like, oh, look, all this property was damaged. Right. And, and focus on that, that rather than yeah. the yeah. hand. Yeah. But uh, Nassim, the question that I had for you, I guess an overall question, do you see your writing as being a, um, a social message? I mean, do, is there a message in everything that you write or you just want to write to just, I don't know, um, just to just be artistic? I, it sounds like you have a purpose in your writing. I do have a purpose in my writing. I mean, I think that I did, I don't think that, well, so the play about Iran, Seek the Water, that had a lot to do with the misunderstanding that Americans have about Iran. I mean, I wanted to show the face, like the real lives of Iranians and the experiences of the revolution that Iranians went through. Because in America, we're not really taught in schools about other countries or like other cultures. It's and I think as a result, Americans are very fearful of like traveling abroad and, of you know, like an American might who hasn't been exposed 
uh, might be afraid of going to the Middle East, you know, like, oh, the Middle East is this dangerous place, but it's a beautiful place. Some people are afraid of going to Africa. Like it's like seen as this place at war. But, I mean, there's like doctors and lawyers and like, you know, people having parties and there's like, like a burning man, like there's life and life goes on everywhere and there's pockets of violence, but it's a beautiful continent that is very similar to our own culture, but the Middle East as well. And I think that I see my role as somebody who has this unique experience of having lived through very many different cultures. And, you know, I'm not white, I'm not black, I'm not really any category you can tick in a box in the United States. Yeah, but it's like, you know, you don't, there's like Hispanic, you know, right. sometimes South Asian, sometimes some, you know, Polynesian islands, but like there's no Iranian or Middle right. Eastern. It's an identity that we <clears throat> don't really know what to make of right now. But yeah, immigrant, I'm an immigrant. And um, I thought that there was still something in my experience that I hadn't seen, you know, in television or in plays and movies, and that that is what I wanted to speak to. But it wasn't so much that I had an agenda. It was more just like, well, if I'm going to write, what do I have to say yeah. that's unique to me and hasn't been heard? Right. And then also, I think we all have these stories inside of us that we want to tell, and we're not sure, is it a play? Is it a short story? Is it a film? But we want to get it out, and they stem from some experiences we've had or people we've met. And I guess all of my plays do tend to be uh, sort of social message. Either uh, Sir Bazal runs this, um, the San Francisco Olympians Festival, and I had a play in it last year. I collaborated with Edward Morgan actually on this play um, called Written in the Stars, and it's about this a artificial intelligence breeding program. So these two AI scientists have this secret breeding program where they design humanoid artificial intelligence beings. Who are just you know indistinguishable from human beings but they can actually reproduce through their like or they have reproductive organs and then he would you know breed them to each other and then they would give birth to this other species and so we wrote this play together um and it was read in the olympians festival last fall and um that kind of i guess is an example of something that's not so social messagey although you could read it that way too like i'm i'm not planning on just writing about being an immigrant and being from yeah. the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, no, yeah. but I mean, it's, but it sounds like uh, it's, uh, it's the writing, your writing, uh, it's an outlet for you. And it's also a way to, um, to, to express, you know, your views of what's happening out in the world, whether it be, you know, artificial intelligence or whatever. But uh, no, I think it's just fantastic. Uh, where do you see yourself? This is my last question because I know, Norman, you have to get out of here. It's 1215. Um, yeah, we're, we're good for the moment, yes. Cool. Where do you see yourself in the future, Nassim? Where do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to get into um, writing for film and television? Are you happy with where you are? Um, I would where... love to write for television. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you about my, my passion project. Uh -huh. I have been writing a fantasy novel for quite some years. Um, it's called Rebellion. It's a trilogy, the River Wars trilogy. It's actually up on Wattpad, which is this sharing, like this really amazing website and, and community. I think it has 80, 80 million users. Wattpad? Is, is it W-H-A-T-P-A-D? No, it's W-A-T-T-P-A-D. Wattpad. Got it. Okay, okay, cool. We'll, uh, so if you want to read my story, the first book in my trilogy, it's up on Wattpad. And it is called Rebellion, 
River Wars Trilogy, because there's lots of books are called Rebellion. I probably should rename it, but I've been writing it for years and it's very plot driven and it's like world building. It's a high fantasy novel, but it's based on, um, so it's, it's about this secret um, guild of orphan bodyguards in this, and the world is just cities that are like loosely affiliated with one another and in between them is like anarchic, ungoverned territories. And so I've been writing that for ages and I actually did take a year off between when I left academia, I was teaching at Cal State University, Monterey Bay, and then I left and I oh. took a year off and I learned, I taught myself how to do screenwriting using um, script notes, which is a podcast run by two LA screenwriters. It's incredible. If you want to learn screenwriting, I highly recommend it, script notes. And I think I listened to like, I don't know, a hundred hours of script notes and I felt like I got an MFA in, in screenwriting. And I wrote a television pilot for my novel that I was working on. And I like scripted the, the narrative arc for the whole first season and did summaries of the second season and the third season to correspond to the second and third books. And then I set it aside because what do you do with a screenplay? Who knows, right. right? And then I went back to the book and I'm like, I finished the first draft of the book. It's up on Wattpad. I'm going to... Um, do one more round of edits and then start pitching it. And so my dream is to get the book published. Well, first to make it really good because I've spent enough time on it now that I want it to actually be really good to get it published. And then yes, to get like, you know, sell it to a movie studio or a television studio and then be part of writing the screenplay. That would be my dream come true. So, right on. <laughs> no, the, no, the best of luck. I mean, you've already done the work and uh, you already have. I mean, I'm very impressed because all of us who were at the, um, the Berkeley Rep studying, uh, I had wondered, okay, where, were, where are we going and all this stuff? And then I hear your name and I'm like, oh, wow, you have a play going on at the Exit Theater. And so you've, you've actually found a niche. You didn't just write a play, but you're actually marketing it and you're actually, you know, getting known. So that's a fantastic thing. So Thank you've you. already done a fantastic work. Um, Norman, uh, shout outs, birthdays. Birthdays, yay. I, yes, I'm ready, birthdays. Go for it. Um, somewhere in here. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, there we are. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm loving this list. Um, so today is Blair Zerubic, um, Bay Area. Well, he's Canadian, so he's. But at one point, he was in the Bay Area, and uh, we actually met doing. We were both understudying for Love, Love's Labor's Lost with the SF Shakes Festival many years ago. So when I got to work with him again last year, it had been like over 20 years, something like that. That's how long I've known Blair. Anyway, his birthday is today. Uh, Andrea J. Love and, uh, was somebody I just met last summer. She was in As You Like It. She played Phoebe. We ended up having two Phoebe because she got another show up in Seattle and had to leave uh, before the end of the summer. And when I started learning acting, you know, you do all these touchy-feely classes about how much you care about people and you're not competitive. And I see those actors who are competitive, and I've always thought they were kind of jerks. Last summer, I found myself being one of those actors because Andrea was so amazing. She, she sang this song that was beautiful. Her comic timing was amazing, so precise. And I had a scene right afterwards, and I'm like, my scene is a goofy clown scene. <laughs> oh, my, I, I got to compete. I got to beat this. So whatever her applause is, I got to come out, and I got to try and top it. It was horrible, but I, I give her credit for that. I wouldn't have thought that otherwise. And yeah, she's an amazing talent. She writes, she plays music. Um, 
she's an amazing performer. She's beautiful. And she bounces up and down. She was in Sacramento, I think, as we were doing our show, and then all the way up to Seattle. She's, she's working. Uh, Brian Lohman's birthday is coming up this week. Uh, he, I know him as an improviser, and I know he's still part of that community. Um, Catherine Dickinson is somebody I went to high school with, and we did theater together. I don't know if she stayed in. I don't think so. And I'm going to skip names that I think you might cover. Um, but there's another uh, young, well, he was a young man when I met him, Yoma Sains. I'm probably mangling his name. Um, but um, an intense Filipino actor, really amazing. Um, Haley Sacomano um, is an actress I met when I got to do God of Carnage at the Shelton Theater. Uh, which was a weird experience, a lot of fun. It's such an intense play, and she was the other wife. She played Annette, who had to do, um, if you know the play, one of the most famous things in the play is that Annette at one point vomits on stage all over a coffee table. There is no way to hide that or get around it. You have to come up with a way to do that. Ew. I won't give up how we did it, but we did it. It was brilliant, and... Um, yeah, that was, and Haley had to figure that out. And what was funny is, you know, you're an actor, so you try to get in the space for it. And it's like, look, you can't get really, you really can't get truly, honestly sick on stage. We, we got to do this. This is like stage combat to the nth degree. This has to be precise. We got to bring in Maya Herbsman for that. <laughs> it, it, we should have that that production could have used that yeah um a, an actor i've only met once and it's weird because you work in the bay area and you think it's a small community and you see people but uh, his name is david arrow and uh we did jenny baroga's play um buffaloed and uh he played the captain and he was just amazing and i'm like how come i don't know about you well within a month or two after we finished the show He's across the country doing some other show, and then he's down in Atlanta doing another show. He's a Bay Area guy, but he is working all over the country, and that was wonderful for me to see. Uh, nice to know people have their careers at that level. Uh, Barry Lank is another guy I went to high school with, and we did um, high, theater in high school. He has gone on to become a comedian. Um, if you've ever heard of Air America, it was a radio station at one point across America. Um, and he was one of the writers on there, and I think actually even had a little show. Um, Kirk Livingston is another uh, improviser that I know. Holly Fraser, I know I've met through theater, but I know her as a patron. <laughs> so if she hears this, I apologize if there's a more direct connection. But, you know, our audiences are important, and she's not just an audience. She's a very big supporter of Bay Area Theater. And then a um, couple more. Elizabeth Craven is, again... You think you know people, but I did a show up in the North Bay, and I met this whole community, amazingly talented community, and Elizabeth Craven was up there, and she's a director, really powerful person, and um, the last time I think I directly connected with her, she was working with a company called Porchlight Theater, and they would do, uh, they were doing Chekhov and these sorts of, you know, they were like following the Shakespeare model of doing plays outdoors. They were doing it at the Garden Center in Ross. And they had a few seasons of doing these. And I got to the point where I was so thrilled to go out there. It's not easy to get to, but the talent they would bring out was so amazing. Ah, uh, the Ross Valley players, yeah. Yeah. It was so amazing. So, um, and she was directing for them. So Elizabeth Craven. And then the last one I have, Michael Scott Moore. And I actually meant to look it up while we were talking. Michael Scott Moore I met when he was, I believe it was for the 
it was either the East Bay Express or the SF Weekly. Um, he was their theater critic for many years. Hmm. And that was how I met him. He went on to write a novel and then he got held hostage and I think it was Afghanistan. He was there for like a couple of years before the State Department finally worked it out and got him back home. And I always thought that was such an intense experience for somebody who I just thought of as some guy who just goes to theater. Wow, powerful. But yeah, those are the birthday kids I've got for this week. Who have you got? I have, uh, two days ago, Soyla Hughes. Uh, she had her birthday on May the 28th. And I worked with Soyla. I was a stage manager for Bat Boy the Musical at the Ray of Light Theater. And she's an amazing singer and actress. Uh, also, uh, two days ago, Adiola Roll. Uh, my last production at um, EastEnders Repertory Company, the company that I was with for a while, uh, she was a actress and uh, we did Pride Open together. She's a fantastic actress, model, and uh, I think she sings too. Yeah. Two days ago, uh, Werner von, von Werner, Werner von Gogh. Werner von Gogh. He is a Philippine actor and a set builder for Bindlestiff Studios, and uh, so I wanted to give a shout out to him. And that's an amazing name for a Filipino. <laughs> it is. He's fantastic. Uh, also, two days ago, Rachel Bowman. Uh, she uh, was in my, I wrote a little mini musical, Nia, the musical. Yeah, I remember. And uh, she was in that. She was the mom. And also, she and I were on stage. Um, this, is, this is the uh, the Play Cafe. Uh, they have a play, musical cafe. Um, and we were on stage. Uh, there was a short play called um, The Chain. I remember it, the chain. And she and I were husband and wife. Uh, you talked about the late Stephen Randolph. Uh, we talked about him last week. And yeah. uh, the only other person tomorrow, because 30, no, 31 on the 1st, Monday the 1st, that would be Max Chang. And Max Chang was, was, you get him. <laughs> was our assistant stage manager when we did Foreman in Paris. And, and he's, an amazing waiter. Yes, an amazing waiter, and he has slimmed down. He's been working out, and he's uh, he seems to be very, very happy. And um, I saw a posting on Plethos. They were uh, talking about the events that have been going on, and so they had a little caption of our, uh, I guess, a snapshot, a picture of the foreman in Paris, basically saying, your words can start a revolution, basically oh, right. yes. giving solidarity to um, the folks who are protesting and uh, talking, you know, and are sharing their emotions about what's been going on. So I wanted to give a shout out to Plethos. And they're having their last, I believe tonight, they're having their last um, virtual um, uh, karaoke open mic. Huh. And so I'll put a link to that as well. And the one other thing that I want to uh, promote, tomorrow will be uh, the reading of my play on Zoom, Judicial yep. Process. And that'll be, uh, that's presented by uh, Play by Play, uh, Judith Offer, uh, she runs the playwriting um, uh, sympo uh, symposium. I forget. I don't know what they call it. Uh, it's I'm a, not sure what they call it, but yeah, for, it's for writers to get a chance to hear their work out loud as like a first. Exactly, and yeah, she does that at the Brook. She does that at the Brooklyn Preserve because of COVID nineteen. It's being done virtually, and I'm very excited. It's an adaptation of Bertrand Brecht's uh, Fear and Misery in the Third Reich. Bertrand yeah. Brecht. He basically wrote twenty seven one act pieces. One of them was called Judicial Process, and I'm doing an adaptation on it, basically talking about how Trump is handling um, the, the illegal immigration and ICE and its mm -hmm. effect on Latino Americans. And mm -hmm. so 
it's not just me, but also there are a couple of other writers who are involved with it. And oh, we're working with Town Hall Theater. And this will be my first time hearing it. It'll be a stage reading. Uh, Pete Fitzsimmons is in it. Uh, Echo Yamamoto is in it. And uh, Danny Martin, we've had him on. Right. And so that will be, <laughs> that'll be, that'll be tomorrow, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Zoom. And if, yeah. you're inter- and if you're interested in clicking onto it, send me a message and I'll send you the Zoom link. That's it, Nassim. Wait, uh, no, that's not it. I I'm got sorry some. about that. Yeah, yeah go for Nassim, it. Nassim, if you have any shout outs you want to share, feel free to. I also, so we're head to head tomorrow because I've got my three o'clock, um, the three sisters. Uh, and it's, um, it's going to be on Facebook. It is posted on Facebook. So you can see it there and it'll be a Facebook live event um, at three o'clock, a new adaptation of the three sisters. And I'll be performing in that. And then, oh, what did I do with the other one? Um, and then uh, coming up is uh, Playground. That's right. They're sharing their anniversary. I, I saw them on the, in the newspaper. Or Playground? I believe yeah, so, yeah. It's the 25th anniversary. Uh, they always do a thing that they call Best of Playground, and that's we're in that festival now, a whole festival. So right now is a play. Um, I think I just posted it. I don't have the, the yeah. title of it up. Um, but there's, uh, oh, Disbelief, that's the title of it. What I wanted to remember is more than the title, um, the uh, playwright is a local playwright or somebody who started off as a local playwright and is now a nationally known playwright, so yay. Um, And then I will have a piece that I'll talk about more in the future um, that I'm directing as part of the best of playground is uh, six short pieces from the last season, the best Pieces that were voted the best each, they do once a month, we do a series of short pieces. Each show, there is one show that gets nominated as the best. And then they pull from that for this uh, best of. So I've got a piece in that coming up and I'll right say on. more about it in the future. And I wanted to give a shout out to Ruben Grijalva who just had a baby. Um, looks like a baby boy, I'm not sure, but- um... A baby boy and just got married. They got married like maybe three weeks before the baby yeah no so fantastic you know so he and i've known ruben for a, a while i think uh, since 2006 and yeah. uh, his current wife was his girlfriend at the time when right. uh, he um uh, it was a piece called um shadow ball and basically about a negro league oh. baseball player and so um the girlfriend and and ruben they've been together for a long time so congratulations to ruben and for your baby and for your marriage and for the success of Playground because Ruben has been behind the success of Playground and his 25th anniversary. So shout outs to oh, Ruben yeah. and to Playground. So yeah, so three o'clock, was it Three Sisters? Is that the adaptation? Three Sisters, three o'clock. Three Sisters, three o'clock. Facebook. Exactly, and we'll, have a, we'll post that as well. And then two hours later will be judicial process. Uh, Nassim, did you want to shout out anything or uh, did you want to promote anything? I don't have anything. I didn't prepare anything, but I think I have uh, yes. tried to promote as many great local <laughs> playwrights as I could think of yeah. <laughs> off the top of my head. Well, folks should check out Nassim's writings. Uh, we'll post the, uh, I forget the, the website. You'll text it to me uh, where people can read oh, your reading. The, uh, the piece you were talking about. Yes, your book. Yes, I will give you all the information for that. In fact, that will be good if I can send you links to upcoming shows. Yes. That, um, hopefully yes, next November, I've got a play coming out in next November's Olympians Festival, which is held yes. every year. It's 10 years now that it's being held every year mm-hmm. in um, 
in the uh, in the custom made theater and the exit theater, right. and it is a uh, all new play. So all new plays are being read, um, and I'm doing a play this year. It's uh, the theme is folklore, folk tales, and and so I'm doing a piece based on Shahrazad, who is the character yeah. in Arabian Nights. So that'll be in November. Mark your calendars. I'll send a link. Hopefully, we'll be able to do it in person by then. Yeah, um, that'll yeah. be nice. <laughs> Yep, fingers crossed. Exactly. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the scene, you should think about submitting stuff to Playground because, you know, they're always selecting uh, new pieces and that'll be a nice little venue for you. And Norman, you should let me know when, uh, when they're accepting new plays because I've got to, um, I want to submit some plays of mine. Okay. I'll, I'll yes. <laughs> okay. Nassim, did, did you have a good time? This has been really fun. Thanks for having me on the show, you guys. It's been really, really great, really fun. And it's so nice to connect in the middle of this whole pandemic. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, it's, great, it's great to see you again in the scene. And so for, good to see you. Yeah. Um, for those folks, you're watching it already, but we have, I'll put, be posting this on YouTube. And um, the audio part of it will be on uh, any podcast that you listen to, any podcast app that you listen to. Uh, whether it be the uh, the Apple Podcast app or if you're on uh, Android, you can listen to it on the SoundCloud app or just go on soundcloud.com. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm at Rev Space Clay. And I'm at Hoosier Hoosier. Nassim, do you uh, have a an account on uh, Twitter or, face or um, Snapchat? Website? Um, I have an account, um, my first name, my last name on Instagram that I use for theater. And then I also have an account on Twitter that I just started using. I've just discovered the world of Twitter and that is Nassim, at Nassim tweeted. Right on. So right. folks are looking for a budding playwright or even an actress. Are you, are you, have you ever been on stage? Do you want to be on stage? Yeah. Yeah. You asked that question. I absolutely have. I was in a Bridge, Bridget Dunham Portman's play, uh, The Bridget Mourner. Bridget Portman, right on. Yeah. I was, uh, I was in her play, The Mourner at, um, also at the Exit Theater and I played a character called Sana. So that was the most recent, um, theater work that I've done, but I, um, was doing some film and television performing previously. So uh, I have done some performing in the past. I think I'll do it again. It's just, I have a lot of, I'm, a sta I'm very um, shy on stage. So it takes me uh, a while uh, to build yeah. up the courage. <laughs> yeah. And also you're a mom. So I'm sure you've been. And I'm a mom. Well. Yeah. There's that. All right. Well, Nassim, for anyone who wants to uh, connect to Nassim, we'll uh, put your Twitter and uh, your uh, Snapchat, you know, your, your information as well. And, as, and as we always say, we got to find a better sign-off. Sign <laughs> All right, folks. Take care, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.